This is the Signal Cafe, where we focus on agile, product, and lean startup thinking. Today, we're speaking with Mike Marr, who's the co-founder and CEO of Taylor Stitch, an American apparel company that's revolutionizing the way clothing is designed, manufactured, marketed, and sold. Mike, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and Taylor Stitch and what you're into outside of work. Hey guys, Mike Mahar here. Um, man, a little bit about myself. So I actually grew up in a very small town on the coast of Maine, uh, just north of Portland, uh, a little cow town of like 6,000 people. Went to school outside of Boston, studied entrepreneurship, never thought I would end up making clothes for guys. Um, was not my MO in life, um, but somehow found myself here. And post-college, my uh, best friend and I headed west for no other reason other than we thought San Francisco sounded like a cool place to live. Um, he had been here once for two days. He, he tricked some uh, company into flying him out for an interview, and I had never been, so we packed up our lacrosse bags full of clothes, packed up my Nissan Pathfinder full of everything that we thought we might need, shipped it out, we flew out, and we arrived. And so been out here for the last 12 years. Um, we, you know, we, we started Taylor Stitch with like the idea of making custom shirts and, you know, it's kind of now morphed into not only do we still sell, you know, a small amount of custom shirts, but a men's lifestyle brand that kind of, you know, leads into the things that we like to do outside of work. Um, trying to take like, you know, for me, it's, we find ourselves living in an amazing city with, you know, incredible live music and food and beverage and art and culture. And, but you know, like we are, we're always pulled to the outdoors and that's kind of who we see our Taylor Stitch guy is, is a little bit of scratching our own itch in this. How do we make clothes that hit a form and function level that we don't ever have to change? So, you know, like if we're, we make a, a double knee chore pant that, you know, looks great with one of our Oxford Jacks, you know, but it also works just as hard as you need it to in the woodshed. Um, and that's, you know, that's how we think about everything in life. Um, like nothing's, everything's nice and everything's nice, works hard for you, but nothing's precious. And, you know, so I spend a lot of my time outside of work. Um, these days it's more so catered to taking care of my six month old boy. But, you know, in the, uh, in the previous days, it was a lot more mountain biking and fly fishing and, you know, kind of chasing, chasing the mountains in the ocean, wherever, uh, wherever humanly possible. So looking forward to uh, trying to still working on hitting that balance of getting back, doing more and more of that. And, and it gets hard <laughs> finding time to get outside. I used to be a big rock climber and I find myself doing that a little bit less. Um, but, but I love the, how you referred to like the blend of function and form and being able to wear the same pair of pants to work and to a nice dinner and also hiking and also mountain biking. And, uh, it's hard to, or maybe it's not, right? Because it's that classic look. It's not necessarily super hard, um, but a lot of other companies would try to have you buy four pants from them uh, for that same yeah. sort of occasion. Yeah, we want you to uh, be able to do do everything in one. So you go out to San Francisco. Did you have the idea for Taylor Stitch when you went out there? Yeah, you know, we left. Um, we went to a small school called Babson College, which you know has about seventeen hundred undergraduate um, students. And the idea was that we were going to make custom shirts. We were going to put them online. Um, we were going to have you be measured by a body scanner or a local tailor or seamstress or seamster, uh, and then input your measurements and be able to make custom shirts. You know, the 
the internet wasn't ready for that in 2007 and 2008 and the financial markets had crashed and nobody wanted to give two idiot 22 year old boys uh, millions of dollars to kind of go try and solve this problem. Um, we kind of just, we took the, uh, took the, the road less traveled in the Bay area and, you know, bootstrapped it and figured it out all on, all on our own and went a very much more analog, uh, analog approach to it. And so did you start, did, did it launch as that custom shirt where, uh, go get your measurements, either, you know, them already, or you work with a seamstress or a tailor, um, put them into the platform and we'll send you shirts. Um, that was the original plan. And no, what ended up happening was we sourced one of the oldest shirt makers in the, um, in the country. And then from there, we went and started to build custom shirts, one off, um, for customers and like really get an understanding of like what it meant to fit and balance of a great shirt. And so there was no, there was no crazy technology that was, um, they was put into it. So you said small town, no interest in menswear. How did you and your best friend get into custom shirts? Um, so while like the first idea was while we were in Australia studying abroad, there was this brand called wicked campers and they basically took old camper vans or just old vans and converted them. And then their kind of branding to marketing was they were like spray painted with everything from, you know, a, a giraffe, you know, print on it to the Beatles or the Simpsons. And like, you found, you saw these wicked campers like all over Australia, New Zealand. And we were like, Oh, that'd be really cool. And then, you know, we didn't know a ton about financing and leasing cars. And it was not like the most ideal time to start that business in 2008 when gas prices were like North of $5 a gallon. Um, and just, it would have been like a very heavy CapEx. I don't think that there wasn't that many people that were traveling you know, the, the van, the hashtag van life movement had not yet happened. Um, right. You know, we were probably a, a little early on that one. Seem, seemingly like looking back could have been a really good idea. Uh, and probably, probably a fun one, although we, we may have never grown up and we always would have been like a couple of dirt bags, like riding around in vans across the country. A lot of time um, in Yosemite. Yeah. May, you know, may or may not be the worst thing in the world. Um, <laughs> it's a, a very different stroke from where I find myself today. Right. But <clears throat> that idea morphed into... My uh, my original co-founder's father brought back custom shirts from Hong Kong. Now I'm using the toy industry and went on business trips. And we were, you know, we kind of called ourselves the perfect mediums. We we're both 5'9", 170, 175 pounds. And we just couldn't find a shirt that fit. Everything was, you know, the Brooks Brothers slim fit was still a tent. And yeah. Like, you know, the super high fashion stuff. We like went into like, you know, we did our market research, like going into like the Neiman Marcuses and Barneys of the world and you tried on like a $570 Tom Ford shirt and it was just like, you know, bit your armpits and like nothing fit right. And we were like, what if we can make like custom shirts more accessible? And so that was kind of the, uh, that was the original goal. Like why we, why we did what we did. Yeah. And, and so the, the tailored fit, I, I don't know when that came around. It was like 2005, 2010, when people started actually realizing that tailored shirts, um, should be different than they were in 1992. Um, but I, I just gave up on this dream that I had had for the last couple of years of taking all of my favorite shirts from when I was like 13 and 18 and 23 and having them all actually tailored down so that they look good and they don't look super boxy. Nice. But I gave up on that and I gave them a good world. I was going to say very, very few people do that. Like, <laughs> right. 
I, I will tell you, like tailored, like having your clothes tailored is, I mean, they look so much better. Uh, yeah. You know, like even like you know, I like I'll buy our off the rack suits. Like I wore one of our Telegraph suits to my wedding, and like, you know, after I had it tailored, it was epic. You know, right? It fits so perfectly. Um, but you know, before before you know, it fits well. But that like idea of having things tailored, but like the the amount of effort it takes is just like definitely too much of a pain in the ass where people don't want to do it. Yeah, it's unfortunate. There's there's so much of that in all sorts of different areas in life. And, yeah. uh, but y'all kind of, not kind of, y'all are finding ways around that fast fashion and, and really structuring your business model um, opposed to the concept of fast, fast fashion and opposed to the concept of waste. Yeah. Um, and I want to get to that in just a second. Um, in fact, so let's go there now. So talk a little bit about the restitch program mm -hmm. and a little bit about the, uh, workshop program yeah so both of them are all you know, they all fit into this idea this holistic idea of building a responsible company um you know something that we've always admired patagonia doing and you know we kind of look at ourselves and what we're doing is you know taking a lot of those ideals and trying doing them you know as good or better from a circularity perspective um and caring you know as much of, as they do for like the normal guy and so like a, we, we kind of like hate the word sustainability and we only focus on responsibility. It like feels to that is for us as though it's gotten to the point where sustainability is really just a thinly veiled word of marketing. Sure. And so we kind of put these like five pillars of responsibility um, in place. And it's helpful if I just kind of like give the whole, the whole kind of like reasoning behind it is like the first thing we want to do is always make products that are going to last because the best thing that we can do for the world is, make things that last, you know, 85% of clothes, um, every year end up in a landfill. That's inclusive of the things that we feel really good about when we go donate to Goodwill and Salvation Army, uh, which, you know, is a scary thought. Yeah. And then the next two things that we do are more around the product where use responsible materials and care for the people that, uh, that are taking care of that are actually build, building the product. So, you know, 2017, we used 0% organic cotton, by the end of this year, we will have used 95% organic cotton. So it's things like that and just making you know, dramatic changes to our supply chain as fast as possible. And then not only do we pay prevailing wages to all of our, uh, all of our factory employees um, that we work with from our vendors, but we also are working on building and launching development funds where, you know, they're able to make more money. Um, you know, so it's just a better life for them altogether. And then getting into the two things to kind of round out the you know five pillars of responsibility for us that you spoke about was the workshop is our internal crowdfunding campaign, much akin to Kickstarter. You know, and the reason that we did it was a because we were scared of overproducing and having inventory that we couldn't sell. Um, then we'd have to put on sale, so we'd never want to like have to do that as much as you know a lot of. I mean, yeah, we still have promotions, but not it's not as pervasive as it is in large, large retail that doesn't do any product testing that over purchases and, you know, leads to, I'm sure, you know, you may have seen the uh, Burberry got put on blast and they burnt $30 million worth of inventory last year. And, you know, or, you know, people are just selling things at 80, 90% off just to get rid of them. You know, there's huge liquidation issues and we're, I think that the number that I've heard is we're producing 100 million garments a year for seven 
100 billion garments a year for 7 billion people. That's like just an outrageous number of garments per person that that nobody needs. I mean, like, I don't even know how to explain those numbers. Um, and so like the workshop is how do we build more responsibly and build numbers that are more responsible because there's a finite number of resources on the world in the world and we're using them way too fast. So like we want to slow that down and actually care about the product that we make and make it last longer and, you know, restitch, which is our uh, re-commerce initiative that we just launched a few weeks ago. And I guess, yeah, about three weeks ago at this point is that whole idea of keeping our products, you know, naturally these things are handmade people use them and wear them and hopefully wear them hard. And, you know, there are going to be rips and tears and, you know, having them be in a handmade product, there are going to be like missed stitches and, you know, rivets that are missed and things like that, that come back as defective. And we want to fix them. And, you know, we don't, we don't want to get rid of that product just because it's defective. We want to fix it and get it back out into the, um, into the um, commerce stream, you know, and let the, let the customer, be able to purchase it. So, you know, those were super psyched about having restitched live now um, because it, it, it felt this kind of like cap of circularity on what we're doing. And there's still like a few other initiatives that we're going to kind of tie into that, but feeling really good about like where we've kind of landed. Yeah. When, when you jumped on the call, I was just telling you that I was checking out the restitch program and uh, it's, it's so complimentary to, I mean, okay, so the workshop program, you're building the right amount of the right products that your customers want. That is not only such a great business model, and not only is that so ecologically conscious, but it's also just about the most perfect um, instantiation of like agile product management, right? You are getting immediate feedback from your customer about what they want and then giving them exactly that. Yeah. And that's really cool. And then anything, any, um, what would be potentially waste or what would be potentially excess inventory or, or whatever is going to qualify as, you know, um, available for the research program, then you are making that also available for, people to use so that it doesn't end up in a landfill it's incredible thanks man yes but you know it's, it's fun and it's like i feel very lucky that we're able to do what we do and you know it's it always feels as though it's a little bit of this uphill battle trying to get people to you know the customer naturally doesn't care like i mean it's just like the human nature is to be inherently selfish um right. which is like i mean every everybody has like a bit of it and it's like it's just hard there's a convenience to it you know, and to like truly be selfless and like do the best thing. Like we are, we are, I will say we are far from perfect as a business, but you know, it's like, it's all like, how do we all together celebrate these little steps that we're taking to make the world better and, you know, and try and do it faster where we can. Yeah. So y'all are, are now in 2019 in this almost ideal state of uh, very immediate feedback from your customer, um, an extremely mature uh, feedback cycle in, in manufacturing, production, marketing cycle. What what did your feedback and like iteration process and mindset look like in the early days and in the middle days in terms of 
maybe the analytics weren't there. Maybe the traffic wasn't there in order to get as much data as you wanted. Um, what, what did that look like 10 years ago? It was more like really, I mean, 10 years ago, we were like, I think at that point we were just selling custom shirts. So the feedback was more like, did your shirt fit or did it not fit? And if it didn't fit, let's fix it as, as quick as possible to make you happy with it. Um, and then as like we started to develop the ready to wear stuff, the, um, the iterative process was really around like launching small amounts of product, uh, much akin to like a Supreme model and selling it out and making sure that we were never like too far out over our skis and in inventory, you know, and like trying to, trying to stay as like lean as possible and figure out like how fast, how fast can we turn around product, um, like, you know, as it currently stands. And so like, that's, you know, and as we kind of like outgrew that and outgrew like, you know, buying fabric that was just, you know, like, I mean, the big thing about trend in fashion and clothing is that you need to differentiate your product. And so, you know, when you start to move from buying fabric that was, you know, in stock, like on a roll already, and then making shirts out of it to buying, you know, custom fabric and custom designing your own prints and patterns, the lead times extend. So that's when we were like, man, you know, buying, you know, at the time it was like buying 500 yards of fabric was a lot. And we didn't want to, um, we obviously want to keep making custom fabric, but we wanted to mitigate the risk. And so, you know, we started to figure things out like the workshop and how do we, how do we utilize our, our customer and create a relationship with them where, you know, they tell us what they want versus us guessing what we want. We like, we always felt that the relationship uh, between the customer and the company was very broken. Like customers are kind of pushed to the back of the value chain where they don't have a say and merchants and inventory planners kind of make a decision. Like, you know, two merchants could be like you and I sitting in a room, you know, one that you say, I want to make a white shirt. And I say, I want to make a blue shirt. And we sit there and we look at some previous uh, sales data, which may or may not be relevant going forward. We look at some forward trend analysis, then we fight about it. And like, you have the harder head. We're going to I'm like that doesn't make any sense, you know. And then we pass it off to right. inventory planning, and like they try and marry that decision to the, to the top-down financial model that the CFO built to then make a decision as to how much they should buy. And it was like, no, like that doesn't make sense. So from there, we uh, really tried to iterate that on that. And I think you know, coming from a like a nerdy business school background, and not from like a pure like designer fashion background like that's you know what kind of gave us those those ideas and thoughts to uh to change the way that we think yeah so to what extent um at babson did you learn about like digital marketing or uh, e-commerce nothing i mean in 2007 it like wasn't pervasive you know like we were there yeah. from 2003 2007 like i mean not there's there's not that much stuff being sold on the internet, you know. No, yeah. Did you learn that all on your own? Yeah, I mean, we did. We, to, to be honest, for a while we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't until like 2015 that we really like hired a team that like knew it. Like we we built things like very naturally, where like people gave us their email in the store, and we like put it on email list and like emailed them when the product came. But like 
it wasn't until like much later that we started to actually uh, actually like do do marketing, you know, and pay for marketing. <clears throat> right. It took us a while. Yeah, it took us a while to figure that out. And, you know, we hired a few smart people that were smarter than us to uh, to solve that. Well, you figured it out. Some of it, you know. <laughs> um. So, would you say, uh, based on the early emails as well as just based on your current feedback, what is the number one, I guess, like distinguishing factor or, or value driver? I think it's a, like guys want products that last. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's like, like I think the, the male mentality is that like, we don't necessarily love to shop. <laughs> we like things easy for us. And like, we, I mean, listen, we, we want things with like great stories attached to them um, that are going to like last and stand up to the abuse that like we give them. And like, that's what, that's what our guy at Taylor Stitch is. It's not the, it's not the pure fashion guy. It's not the pure outdoors guy. You know, it's somewhere in between that like wants that functionality um, and knows that they can they can trust our product. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Like a lot of guys that I know, myself included, um, you know, like don't want to throw out an old shirt or don't want to um, like stop wearing an old shirt that might have a rip in the elbow um, or, or a wallet that's falling apart. But it's because you've carried that wallet for eight years and you remember when you jumped in the pool or got pushed in the pool and it got wet and it dried out and started to bust, but it's got a story behind it and it's like a part of you. And I yeah. think that things that do last inherently will develop these stories around them. Totally. I mean, and that, and that's a lot of the products we make, you know, like we make, we make raw denim, like we talked a little bit earlier about like being denim nerds and like wax jackets and boots and the things that like, again, you develop, you develop stories and like the, the clothes become yours um, because they like, they wear into your patterns and have a different, you know, a different look than anybody else's. Yeah. And that's cool. You know, like, I mean, I can remember like there's times where I, uh, you know, like I have my, my jeans laid out on the floor and I was just like admiring them all and kind of like looking at not, there's like three or four pairs that I have just like see the different fades and like how they all, you know, are. And like my wife walked in and she was like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> and you're like, don't worry about it. This is my weird, this is my weird time. Like, you know, I love that you said that. And I can't wait for Mary, my wife to listen to this episode because I troll her and my son all the time talking about my, Evo on my jeans and on my wallet and the patina on my leather goods and stuff. Yeah. Um, and they don't get it. And so I troll them even harder, but, yeah. but there's something really cool about that. And, and so, so you buy, uh, you buy these pants that are one color, it's dark blue. Then five years later or, or six months later, they look like 98% of the jeans that you see in Nordstrom or anywhere else, except they didn't look like that off the rack. And there's something just really cool about that. Um, yeah, they're yours. You're on them. No, like, nobody can change them, you know? And they get your, they get your weird fades and like, that's what's cool, you know? Yeah. So let me ask you this. As you've scaled, and how many people are at Taylor Stitch now? Uh, we have just around 20 people now, if you not including the stores. Okay. 
20, 25 people. We have a we have a small office back in uh, Portland, Maine, um, with like four or five folks there handling all of like customer retention and uh, marketing and things of that nature. And then most of our like product and operations and uh, brand marketing stuff is uh, out here in San Francisco. So how, as you've scaled, how have you um, ensured that the principles that that are that are driving you to move in the direction that you are in terms of responsibility and just being conscious of, of people and the planet. Um, how do you ensure that that vision as, as the CEO is, is really carried, carried out um, throughout the company? And, and also, how do you drive innovation throughout the company to make sure that, um, that people are thinking kind of outside the box? Yeah, you know, I think like it starts with two things. It starts with who you hire and how you develop product. Um, so, you know, like whenever we look for people, like I look for kind of like the crazy entrepreneurs that are, you know, much like myself, you know, we don't like, we don't like managing people. We like, you know, finding people that are, you know, more intelligent than us and, you know, are, have that kind of like thirst and fire to try and solve problems, um, you know, on top of doing their daily job. But like, you know, we don't, we don't want them to be limited by that. You know, that's kind of like. You know, we have early conversations in every interview. Um, John RCO always says to be like the great thing about being in a place like Taylor Stitch is if you have an idea on a Tuesday, you could have it live on a Thursday. It's up to you. You know, go go figure it out. You know, I'm like, we want, you know, like, yeah, we're very busy and like you don't always have time to do all the ideas that you want. But like we want you to like search that, seek that time out and find that time and go execute. Um, so, you know, that that's the initial phase. And then, you know, always developing product and keeping product at the forefront of that is, um, is I think incredibly important. So like making sure that every time we go source cotton, it's organic. Like if we can, you know, continue to push on our heavy bag program, which is hundred percent recycled, you know, knits, t-shirts, things of that nature. Like where can we, where can we push that and where can we push our manufacturers and, you know, I think that start like everything else kind of falls into place um, when you when you've set that up as part of like the reason the re, your reason for being, um, which is exciting. You know, and I think like you know then you try and make sure that like we're like at all touch points talking to the customer about like we build product that's gonna last first and foremost, and that we do it responsibly, um, and then you know, helping the customer and having them like be a part of the brand in a more meaningful way, I think is always super important. I mean, there's like these businesses are in a way relatively simple, but still really hard to get right. You know, I think, you know, like you make a product and you sell it to somebody and like you need to find the customer and you need to care for them and you need to develop, like deliver great product and service to them, you know? And like, that's, that's that got to have the great product you got to have the great service and you know those combined like you know it seems very simple but many people don't do it right which is still crazy to me yeah i think it's you know the easy the easy way and in the models and the case studies that are out there it's it's not always um in line with with how y'all are doing things right i think it it does take that constant uh thinking outside the box and making sure that um 
that you're not making decisions based on status quo, but rather based on the principles of the company. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's like, you know, they can't, people have said this quote a million times. It's like, do what, do what's, uh, do what's right, not what's easy. You know, I think it's like trying to, trying to get everybody to live by those, live by those rules. And again, not, not the easiest thing. So as the CEO of a, of a startup that's now growing, um, I assume that you wore a ton of hats at the beginning, and I assume that now you're having to kind of take some of those off. Um, what does that look like? Um, how has kind of your role changed over time? And what are you, uh, what parts of the business are you most involved in? Yeah. So, you know, like a lot of it's, you go from like player to player coach to coach, and sometimes back to player is like the easiest way to kind of explain it. Now, you know, I still, it's weird. You know, I think that like, I always enjoy being a player. Like I don't always love the, I don't love the coaching as much as I love like getting in the weeds and like solving problems with people. And so it's like, it's definitely changed. Like, you know, I'm not, you know, I mean, we used to do everything. We'd build product. We, you know, on the website, we ran the store, like we did literally everything. And now it's like really about hiring the role changes where you're, you do a lot more recruiting and, talking to people and, you know, trying to get that right, which is a huge challenge is like hiring, hiring people is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And like getting that right is always, is always difficult because there's so much more you need to think about where it's like, you know, when there's, when there's three people, like the three of us that founded it, Mikey Barrett and I, we knew, we knew each other, you know, and like, we knew that it was just like a, everybody die hard, like go do what you got to do and figure it out. Um, whereas like when you hire more people, like then there's team dynamics and personalities, uh, and things like that. And it just, it naturally gets more challenging. And so, you know, those are the biggest things that have shifted over the years, um, into like kind of where, where, where the CEO role starts today. And it's, you know, like, listen, we still like still dig into a lot of stuff, um, you know, at a very granular level to make sure it's going right. You know, and it's this happy balance, of like doing that and making sure you're not micromanaging because that doesn't scale. Right. So talk a little bit about product mm. and what product management looks like, um, because y'all very much have a physical product uh, side. Yeah. Uh, but you're also incredibly, you, know, you have an incredible digital presence. So I, I assume that those have a lot of overlap in terms of like the, the process and the mindset and the approaches that you take to product management. Um, there's probably some differences. So talk a little bit about each of those and, and maybe how, how they align and how they're different. Yeah. I mean, from a, um, from a physical product perspective, we like, a, we have a very sophisticated product development process that, you know, we're thinking a full year out um, and analyzing everything that goes on, you know, and how to scale that and how to make better product and, and how to do cooler things and make cooler fabrics. And, you know, we're always trying to push the limits on what we can do from a responsibility perspective, um, like developing our hemp workwear fabric, um, developing our heavy bag fabric. And so there's, there's a lot of things there. And then, you know, I would say like the overlap really comes in the merchandising. Like when we're trying to develop these products, we're trying to develop product stories that, you know, mesh together and then we need that to really come together 
on the website as one. So the marketing message and emails and social posts and all of that digital manifestation of this physical thing you've built, that story is contiguous and succinct versus, um, versus like very haphazard and all over the place, you know, but like, and then as we talk about building the e-commerce and making that better, it's like, you know, we spent a lot of time really fine tuning e-commerce and what our store looks like, you know, and a lot of the effort now is spent on merchandising it. So definitely a separate process from the design and development of the website, but you know, it's more that we focus that around like the consumer experience, less around like the product and more things like how does the product merchandise into that experience? Sure. So is, uh, I see that you've sold 125,000 Jack shirts. Is that your most popular product? Yes. And is that the evolution of the initial Taylor Stitch product of custom shirts? Wait, say, say that one more time. Is the Jack the kind of evolution of the initial custom shirt launch when y'all first started out? Uh huh. Yep. That is exactly like we started building shirts. And like we've always been a shirt maker. And, you know, that's where we, um, that's where we like kind of hang our hat or hang our shirt, I guess. Yeah. And, um, that's what, um, it's what, like we've been known for, you know, it's like a good portion of our revenue comes from making shirts. So talk about y'all have the Yosemite, y'all have the Jack. Every shirt you make is a cool kind of every guy sort of a shirt that you would you can see your grandfather in, you can see your dad wearing it. You want to wear it. You hope that your son wears these shirts um, in the future. How, how do you how do you come up with or how do you develop these kind of classic products? And what sort of um, where do you draw inspiration? Um, most of where we draw inspiration is from our uh, is from our like life's experiences. You know, it's like trying to draw like pull out fabrics. Like our Yosemite shirt is. You know, a lot of our sh- our shirts fit the same. Like it's a lot of like the same block, and then from there we like develop into um, develop into styles. Like the Yosemite shirt is, you know, based off some of our favorite um, our favorite shirts from growing up. Our favorite like uh, chamois and flannel shirts, and we're like, okay, let's let's make this fit better. Uh, and so that right. that's what we go and develop. And so it's you know, there's a is a harkening to the past while like a looking to the future is how we kind of think about our uh, our design process. Yeah, there's yeah, there's great shirts in the closet that, that just don't fit well. <laughs> Wish that they did. Why don't we make one that does and is just as cool as this shirt from the seventies? Yeah, exactly. So, what else? What haven't we covered? What what's coming up in 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 the next year? What are you most excited about that you can talk about? Oh man. Um, I think like, you know, for me, it's a lot of like, we've done a lot of really hard work redeveloping the supply chain to be super responsible over the last 24 months, um, getting restitched launched, you know, I would say like the next 12 months or, you know, a lot of time spent doing what we've developed better and like laying down a focus on, you know, continuing to tell the stories that we're telling in more depth, um, you know, like we'll always be launching new products and there's like a lot of fun stuff there, but, um, that's, 
you know, that's where I'm uh, like spending spending a lot of my time, and like that's where I think the rest of the business will spend a lot of their time. We're continuing to we we launched a um, like a VIP concierge program um, with a team in Maine, so we'll continue to try and double down on that this year. And you know, we want to be able to you know build like we want to be the trusted place for guys to go shop, but like. Hey, you know, if you want to go find a vintage watch or like learn about vintage cars, we want to be able to like point you in the right direction too. And like use the network of like cool people um, and other businesses that we've, uh, that we've kind of developed relationships with over the course of the last decade, 12 years um, and do that. So that's where I see a lot of, um, a lot of development being done. It's just like how we think about customer service as a whole you know, in trying to scale up, like doing more proactive outreach and creating one-to-one relationships with our consumer to, you know, discuss their wants and needs. Yeah, that's so cool. And and, and you mentioned, right, like use our uh, network of cool people to, to you know, help your customers out and, and to develop those um, relationships and, and conversations. It's not something that um, a lot of companies are, are interested in, though they should yeah. be. Um, but it's also not something that an inauthentic uh, company would be able to pull off. So I think that's a really cool endeavor. And that's that's and that's you know really a lot of exactly it is like we we have such a strong relationship with our consumer already that we want to you know drive that even deeper. Um, it's fun, you right. know. It's like I mean, I can't tell you like how many times like. We've had customers like send us jam at Christmas from like Portland, Oregon and say thank you for like making great product. And like, it's those like weird little relationships that like actually mean so much and like really set a path of like who you want to be as a brand from a, uh, uh, from a service perspective. Sure. Man, this has been great. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Dude, you got it, Jack. Thanks for I, having me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks, thanks for your time and and your candor and your insight. Um, really look forward to ordering these restitch chinos, getting them in the mail, yeah. and uh, hope everything just continues to take off. It's been great talking to you. Every, everybody, everybody loves mail day. Let let us know how the restitch. You know, we're working on doing a better integration. You know, unfortunately, Restitch is still like a separate, uh, a separate shopping cart, but we're working on doing a Shopify integration with the awesome folks at Yertle um, who have helped us do everything and launch Restitch and make it possible. So kudos to them. And we're looking forward to the next kind of phase of that too. Very good. Uh, so I'll link out to, you, to the Restitch program and to the site and to all of your social. Thanks, man. Thank you so much again. Have a great day. You too. Enjoy the weekend. You as well. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. So thanks for listening to The Signal Cafe and this episode with Mike Mahar of Taylor Stitch. This was a super fun interview for me because I've been following Taylor Stitch for years and I don't often get the chance to combine my passions for agile and product and entrepreneurship and menswear all in one conversation. So thanks again to Mike and thanks to you all for joining us. If you enjoy the show, you can check out the detailed show notes at signal.cafe forward slash eight. And please leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends and stay tuned for our next episode with Bayfar John Shai, CEO of Innerworks. 
Thanks again. Adios.